This is the Rogue Insider Podcast. Well, rather than getting into my personal experiences of evil, uh, I'm more interested in exploring a definition of, and framing of what it is. Mm-hmm. And I enjoy the uh, endeavours and efforts of Jordan Peterson with his atheist Christianity. And so in his interpretation of Christianity from a sort of a functional uh, Jungian lens, very materialist, um, successionist perspective, he identifies Satan and Lucifer as two different threads of um, or types of thinking in the human mind. And the Luciferian streak is the one in which someone believes they know a truth or the truth and the limitations of it, and they no longer endeavor to seek beyond it, and they no longer question the validity of the truth that they believe, which fits to some extent, certainly in theosophical terms. And then the satanic reference, he's saying that the satanic streak is to believe you can bend the rules and get away with it. And that those two explain all evils. Yeah. Um, Peterson is over-discussed. Is that what he says? That evil is reducible to these two trends and that there's nothing evil outside those? No, he clearly identifies there's all sorts of different threads and expressions of evil. Mm. But he identifies those two as traits in the human mind. So it's, it's a lensing of evil as a human interpretation and that in that there is a modality of thinking and an ad, it's an ad, almost an attitude well as a psychologist so I suppose that makes sense at some level it's not a very disturbing concept of evil that it's a, that people have certain attitudes and some of them are bad like it doesn't really compare to the medieval European concept of the almost certain damnation of almost all humans for their absolute corrupted and just absolutely despicable, malformed, innate failures. What the eternal battle in the hearts and minds of man well, that's one aspect of it, well, but I, the medieval conception is not the medieval conception of evil in the European Church is not one where which occurs like that's a post that's a psychological retroactive um, projection back into the past to think about it happening inside the hearts and minds of men. The medieval conception was that the world was a fallen place in which the in which existence itself was a innately evil phenomena so when one considers the paintings of uh, Bosch for example right yeah where you've um, a common theme is just the complete futility and absurdity of human existence consider a painting like the hay wane where a massive pile of hay is piled up on a um giant cart 
and the symbolic content of that is that each of the pieces of hay is a human life that has been harvested and is being sent to hell and all of them are all of those lives are mostly meaningless and mostly worthless and then around the cart is this congregation of um, sinners and deviants drinkers and fighters and soldiers and whores and also just all of the regular corrupted individuals who inevitably are going to march themselves off to hell but deeper than that the paintings themselves in this i'm um, relating to you from a book i read about bosch and bruegel so joseph leo kerner who wrote bosch and bruegel from enemy painting to everyday life makes the argument that we can tell from um, his paintings that he regards himself as a, a terrible sinner who's inevitably bound for hell and his paintings are a type of trap that he makes but because it's sinful to paint anyway and remember that he's living at this time in the period of the um, protestant revolutions in holland so there's a it has been or is about to be or is ongoing a massive war against the Spanish Catholics in the southern part of the country so uh, him making these paintings is already a sin the paintings themselves are a trap in which the viewers are enticed to sin by enjoying their the content of the paintings and the viewers understand that and engage in it anyway and thereby the kind of circle of complete sinning uh, has turned you know one complete revolution and all involved are almost inevitably bound for hell rightly so under the under this kind of perspective because they are emanations of this fallen material evil world so I find it interesting that of all of the varieties of religious dissent or the dissent in religiosity from the past to the present, one of the dissents that is also can be observed is the dissent from evil as an innate part of the kind of whole worldview that is held by a, a entire or by huge groups of people down to a simple psychological phenomena inside the minds of people <laughs> it's it's a great achievement <laughs> i think it's brilliant to be able to boil it down and make it so uh, inoffensive so ha have we defe are and, we defeating uh, evil is that what's happening uh, no we are facilitating the uh, reformation of evil by making our challenges to it less confronting so for example if i project oh you have the spirit of such and such in you and it's causing these things and and it needs to be cast out and you need to go away or you know, it needs to be treated in these ways or you need to be destroyed versus oh there's a way you're thinking that's wrong uh, consider this <laughs> one of them seems a lot less likely to cause conflict. Hmm. 
Who was that ancient Greek that made the argument that all all apparent evil is just based off a misunderstanding anyway? That because people that's, are, well, that's a that's the Vedantic stance as well, and that uh, evil is just ignorance. Yeah, you don't know. You don't know that your actions are actually creating a tougher life for you. So if you knew, if you really knew, if you knew that what this religion would give you, if you knew, then you wouldn't do what you're doing. Hmm. So what do you think causes more moral uh, outcomes? A worldview in which evil is an active force in existence that intelligently and uh, responds to the world in a way to uh, corrupt and destroy or a worldview that says that evil doesn't really exist and only ca- appears to exist because of the ignorance of human beings well because I have a frontal lobe I have a relationship to evil unfortunately um, or maybe even fortunately in that I have witnessed and engaged in close uh, intellectual, spiritual, and physical conflict with people who are entirely possessed by what I would best summarize as evil. And they look in my eyes and they say to me things, and their, you know, their face takes on the most wicked of expressions, and they say to me, um, you think there are only good people in this world, but you're wrong. There, is, there are evil and then they just entirely adopt the embodiment of their conception and their their conviction towards being evil. And it stepped from a psychological issue to the very real embodiment of a persona of evil. And then I was like, okay, that's actually something I can relate to and fight with and destroy. That's no longer some abstracted thing. It's through man. And when man is surrendered to it and given to it, then it's a very real... In fact, it, it couldn't look more like the, the, the paintings, the artistic depictions of, of demons. Like literally contorting your face and your eyes blazing like a demon. It's... it's absurd in a way because I'd had a relatively sheltered life and I'd only seen such things um, in media to to really see someone who is totally given over to a desire to embody that regardless of whether evil actually exists or not that person you can say the, the mask, the persona, the artifice that they're using to express whatever their soul is, it engaged in a way that directly reflected the historical um, summaries and images that depict evil. So who am I to argue that it doesn't exist? I have my own measure from within me, and it looks, you know, was it, what's that say? If it um, looks like a dog and it barks like a dog, it's a dog. Mm. Have you ever deliberately committed an act of evil? No. I have. Um, and one of the things that's interesting about going, I am con- 
not for you know internally driven psychological reasons but just as a at a as an intellectual exercise to go i'm going to commit an act of evil and then going and doing it is that it relieves you of one of the varieties of hypocrisy that is available to people if you think of the there's an analysis of the world that says that the world can be viewed as evil versus evil right this deeply cynical perspective the evil the world can be viewed as good versus evil this kind of crusading perspective and the world can be viewed as good versus good this kind of mm, disagreement about policy perspective and if you deliberately commit an act of evil it removes your capacity to be a crusader it's a very kind of Crowleyan thing to do and I don't recommend it but when so it's certainly very emotionally appealing to believe that the world is good versus good but when you're aware of acts of evil or have had a personal experience of them or basically read any amount of history um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's so it becomes very yeah. difficult to hold yeah. to the good versus good perspective mm. and when one considers this critique of oh there's not really good or evil there's just different cultural values and some cultures hold to certain culture values and other cultures hold to other values i don't know where that fits in okay well to use the the initial definitions um with with the first the first being adherence to a truth as if it is the only truth so you have one culture says this is true another culture this is true and the very fact that they won't consider the other or they won't allow a synthesis born of um, conflicting truths, so to speak, to actually synthesize an actual truth, or basically to look at them both as being, well, neither of us is correct, and let's try and constantly improve. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, that's on the one hand. The other is a, a cheater, and I've cheated at games, played Monopoly and deliberately taken money from the bank, to experiment with bending the rules in the belief that I can get away with it, like learning how to get away with it. And that's that's like the most simple form of fulfilling basic evil. Well, it sounds like your conception of evil is very strongly tied to uh, order. But I think most people would have the perspective that what's legal and what's moral are never perfectly aligned. Which suggests to me that the that what's ordered and what's ethical are not necessarily connected. It's, it's not the breach of order. It's the betrayal of the trust of the other people that you're gaming with. Mm. Right, right, right. So it's de to deliberately risk the betrayal of trust in order to get personal gain. Well, I wonder if when Sloterdijk um, refers to... Uh, he says, to speak in mythical terms, at the basis of the world there is a catastrophic fissure gaping wide open from which evil bursts out with wanton violence. I wonder if that's the same thing that Zizek is talking about when he says that there's an ontological incompleteness to existence. 
there's a there's a crack in the ontology there's a there's a void mm. into which comes monstrosity the from which sorry from mm. which emerges mm. one of the problems with discussing any of these issues is that it's difficult to remember that we live in a period of historical exception that up, in, up until 1945 well the world was basically existed in a state of permanent warfare of everything against everything else either in the pre-state time as a periods of uh, people and nationalities warring with each other and in the post-state period from the Treaty of Westphalia onwards and especially speaking in a European context of constant state warfare and conflict and then from the period from 1945 until 1989 the world was balanced on a razor's edge where nuclear destruction was one of the potential outcomes that could occur at the end of any day and then from 1991 until the present day we've lived in this kind of what one could exaggeratedly call a period of outside of time and history where the wars that have occurred are kind of not to disrespect the people involved in those wars but minor in comparison to the historical average at least so when we discuss the problem of evil it has to be framed against this background of uh, living inside like a type of you know silver or golden or angelic age and i think the fact that we are not as morally compromised as our historical ancestors gives us both the ability to discuss the problem of evil uh, at a at a intellectual remove and also in some sense uh, compromises our ability to understand what evil is why and especially what i consider the root of the problem why it exists purely through unfamiliarity if victory is survival then bending the rules and getting away with that and the result being your survival is a victory so now we look at the fringe of moral evil mm. well consider the boogers uh, this gnostic sect that required that decided that entry into the world was a sin because the world was fallen reproduction was forbidden and they all exited the stage of history immediately i don't know how uh, an evolutionary thinker I mean, approaches winning, that problem that... <laughs> <laughs> well you know the they if if ideas are you know transcendent in value then they won and if they're not then they lost 
Yeah, from a genetic perspective, they extinguish themselves. But from a mimetic perspective, uh, I mean, the ends of the memeplex that they were involved in were served. It seems to be recursive. There is a consistent recursion of um, this, not necessarily Gnostic, but typically associated with the Gnostic vision, that this is a world to be escaped from, and that we need to that need we need to achieve a certain grade of virtue so that we may um, no longer be forced to suffer and endure the hardships of life in this half plane or hellish world, and. That keeps recurring, but of course, in the cultures and the cults where this occurs, those cults die off because they they're not motivated to live. So it seems strange that they all keep dying off, but yet they keep recurring. Well, I'm not familiar enough with Gnosticist philosophy to dig deeply into it, but my assumption or I assume that the kind of core of Gnosticist approaches to existence is that existence itself is evil. The entire material world is and is evil. It's beyond redemption. And that, you know, for a whole variety of religious reasons, depending on which religion you adhere yourself to, um, the escape from the uh, fallen world is the highest goal. Any pleasure that you can experience here is just a temptation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, at, at best, it's a malicious trick of the devil to bait you into, yeah, remaining in existence. Kerner writes, by showing us how birds get trapped. Bruegel causes us to imagine, from a higher perspective, how we ourselves might be snared. Surrounded by pitfalls, the Haywain's peddler marches toward what amounts to a trapdoor. Through the painting of everyday life, Bosch lures us into loving the world and art, only then to catch us in the very trap that ensnares humanity in the triptych's opening state. And through a nature already corrupted by Lucifer's pride, Adam, and the Adam in all of us, engenders a heretical, obscene, and counter-natural state of being. Right. Now, you were talking about the history, right? the history of, of evil and how it was so prevalent in our culture, and that we have a golden age, essentially. Mm. It's falling upon the Gnostic vision and the understanding and appreciation of a bestial element to us, and that the natural world, if I can use the term, uh, the natural world inclines us towards evil acts because it's because life is about survival. Mm. And then we need to get out of that trap in order to achieve some transcendent state. I wonder to what degree the root cause of all religions is the the problem of the world. Existentialism is the name of the school of philosophy that uh, theoretically deals with the 
or admits that our own existence as people is a problem that we need to deal with already. That being the case, if my prior suggestion is accurate, then all religions are already existentialist. Yeah, I think that was that was Soren Kierkegaard. I wish I had a book out and about right now. I think he was the one who sort of married existentialism, modern existentialism, with Christianity. Mm. But uh, if we look at the synonyms of evil, then it seems pretty clear that it's not really encapsulating the phenomenon of the human lens and perception of evil in much the same way that we can perceive gods as personalities. Like, if you look at synonyms for evil and you think, okay, bad, vicious, ill, wicked, cruel, unskillful, defective, harmful, criminal, misfortunate, diseased, m- with malady, and malicious or malice. Mm, malignant. Like, oh, malignance, right. And so that strikes me as the most fitting word, malignancy. But none of them, none of them seems to invoke a vision and a perception of the character and nature of evil. And we are social beings, so we lens things through a social matrix. And so we can address the nature of evil in a purely strict logical term. So um, is it essentially uh, bestial qualities that deny us you know, the perpetuation of certain things we value? Or is it some sort of actual spirit or character and I mean, essentially, depending on how we think and act about it, they can function exactly the same, and it, it doesn't in, in the way that it motivates man to action. Uh, neither is distinctly correct or incorrect in any measurable way. Uh, it's really coming at it from a different lens. Whether you're looking at an empirical, if you can, um, sort of a, a structured empirical lens, and as much as you could, uh, or the phenomenon of human perception and relations to character and personality but I'm happy to address the first because what you're saying is that nature itself has challenges the natural world and that you're suggesting the religions are really built around trying to fortify the virtues that allow culture to perpetuate and I actually agree with this Mm. in our previous podcast we talked about the relationship of the idea that religions support the propagation, the forward propagation in time of societies. And Mm. if part of what's important about religions is the conception of evil, then that's important to know. And what's really clear to me is that our conception of what evil is, is very much based in where we see evil coming from what is the root so if we take the Vedantist perspective that evil is just this kind of accidental ignorance that arises in the world and then that allows us to be for the world in some sense pro the world on the other hand if we consider evil to be something that springs up from inside of us because we're a malignant thing that happens in the world then that inclines us towards a inward approach on the other hand if we regard evil as uh, as coming from the world itself that the world itself has fallen then that is 
um, some way validates us to combat evil through combating the world in an outward going way or if the locus of evil is outside of the existence that we and the world are in and inserts itself in a malignant fashion into the world and into our relationship to the world and into us well each of those approaches gives us extremely different understandings of what evil is and I think it's important to isolate where we place the locus of evil and what its sources if we're going to talk about it's because the problem with with the word evil as the problem with many words is it papers over or collates a huge number of differing concepts into one sort of general prospect can we start with the function then what the functional effect of evil is a degenerate streak it's that its presence typically influences the culture negatively although there are times when it can serve a purpose for example in war evil acts historically have been performed by the victors in order to achieve victory and while it diminishes the um, sort of the virtuous quality of of the victory it in no uncertain terms, contributes to the victory. So looking at an important function, and so as if it's as if we are very clearly descended from those who have acted in evil ways in order to in order to continue to survive. But it's but I wanted to focus more on the degenerate nature of evil, in that there is a rebellion against it historically in terms of the function of civilizations the functions of, of families and communities evil seems to be a blanket or collated term for the behaviors and the outcomes that don't actually serve progenesis the prospect of healthy children much like what we were talking about in our religion podcast well I see the arising of the concept of evil as just arising from a good-bad binary, right? Like the one of the very first simple concepts that a child faces as we grow up is a good thing, bad thing, right? Yeah. And so the concept of evil, uh, so on this binary, which slides from... Um, one side to the other of good things and bad things uh, there's a suggestion that a good that that there's an end that there's a pole at the end of at either end of that binary and that at the highest end of that pi- binary of good things as we head in that direction this kind of theoretical best pole you know we should yeah exactly where it's generally speaking is considered god and similarly heading backwards through down through the uh, levels of this binary we end up at this supposed negative pole of the bad which i think we can call evil and in that sense evil is just a intensifier of the concept of things being bad because it somehow straddles the idea of something being bad and also incorporates the part of the pole 
or part of the pole of the bear's end. Yep, I find dualism very functional in terms of being able to interpret my world through a dualistic lens. Mm. I mean, I might be able to engage in um, a monopolic thought like Vedantic vision, but you know, dualism's not a problem for me. Yes, I can see that. I can mm. see that if you have a pole of God, then it, it's very natural for man to extend the negative pole. So how do you define it then? As, as the opposite, the inverse? Because as you slide down this scale, I mean, it's not, it's not self-similar. It's not just an inversion. If you want to, okay, we can take that strategy of defining evil by the inverse of what is godly. Yeah, but I don't think that that's how it arises. I think it. I think that the. Or let me be more precise. Because I think that the initial binary of good and evil arises in the child's mind from exposure to the world and the recognition of there are things that are bad, then I think that, uh, and that that happens first before the recognition that there might be poles at either end of the binary that are the kind of um, attractors in the um, chaos theory sense of the word that, that pull everything towards the, those poles because this happens before the recognition that those exist I think bad is a um, inherently subjective although I don't particularly like that term uh, conscious reaction which sits in the matrix of reject avoid push away so in that sense it's a I suppose I have to admit that it's an inherently psychological phenomena first I think it even goes further into an aesthetic realm because I've seen and understood families where children have been encouraged to you know win at all costs so uh, the competitive streak as exhibited in the in the youth is supported and the nature of that expression ends up resulting in contortions of their face it's as if i perceive an aesthetic of wickedness in the face of the child which is then supported and encouraged by their family and culture as being good because it leads to victory but when i look at it i see a quality an aesthetic that tells me that's actually wicked even though it leads to victory and and what's the root cause of our understanding of what that aesthetic is is it something that is culturally and uh, that is enculturated into us as we develop through childhood or does it stem from uh, internal pre-rational um, understanding or is it something that's genetically encoded in us I think that on at a, at a child level, it's given to us and by, by our supporting culture and our environment. But as we grow into adults, there seems to be an overarching streak that I don't know whether it necessarily is genetic. 
but it's witnessable in the nature of the facial expressions. So the archaic imagery of demons and the ways their faces contort match the faces of the elderly who have been engaging in the aesthetic of evil. Interesting, because I would interpret it far more that like the faces of demons contain the symbolic content of attacking animals. And when we consider our culture's symbolic, or our cult, yeah, our culture's symbolic of evil is one, uh, what are the animals that are associated with it? Bats, snakes, rats. Bats are, it's obvious, nighttime creatures that have this kind of disgusting aura about them. Snakes. Even an angry goat is sort of scary. You know, tilts its head forward, shifts yeah. its brow down as if it's in, at a war footing. Yeah, I mean, but let, let me make, finish making my point though, that the, okay. the screeching of a of a cat and the mm. opening of a snake's mouth with these kind of fangs, that's the symbolic face of a demon that I think about. Why goats and demons are associated in our culture, I have less explanation for, mm. other than perhaps it's an inheritance of a rejection that occurred in the Christianization of Europe. I think we're addressing different forms of evil. I think you're looking at the bestial modality, which is the threat to existence. Mm. an existential threat whereas there is an extra tier of psychological willful manipulative malignancy and mm. that shows in different ways and that's a subtle it's more subtle and it's and it's buried in in expression it's revealed to some extent what? people break character and you Have... can catch them smirking like you see somebody smirk at a naughty joke and if somebody spends their life smirking at naughty jokes, I mean, where's the smirk originating from? It's actually encoded into us. We don't, we're not trained to smirk. You can see a, a child smirk. And then if they continue smirking for a predominant portion of their life, when they're elderly, they have these smirk formations in their face. And so there's different types of demon. There's, I mean, in demonology. In, in, in well, it shows itself in the split between demons and devils, right? Demons right, are bestial, okay. bestial creatures that attack, and devils are like uh, intelligent creatures that manipulate. Right. The, yeah, the cunning. And what's the traditional depiction of the devil? An ever-present force that maliciously uses cunning tricks to mislead into destruction. And you go into other forms where you have Aramanic and sort of Beelzebub and Luciferian, and they're all depicted as incredibly beautiful deceivers. So there's an, uh, it's even an implied value system twist, as if you're substituting uh, something for something else. You're substituting perhaps um, pleasure and aesthetic over quality of progeny. like it's a values issue and it's and it maybe it 
it's not even that these are entities. It could just be quite simply that somebody's uh, logical matrix has misarranged or misaligned the prioritization or their value system. And it's not it's inherently visible. And somebody can go about their life being very charming and engaging in kind ways. And yet there's a, a deep malignancy in them and that fundamentally aren't contributing towards the betterment of the culture. What's a good example? Hmm. I don't know. I want to give people as examples. It could be quite offensive. Well, we can interpret the kind of major demons fairly simply, right? Lucifer is evil because he challenges the hierarchy that he's within. Yeah, he thinks he's right. Beelzebub is evil because he brings disease. He has his value system mis misaligned. Well, I don't think I don't think that Beelzebub even has a value system. I think Beelzebub is just a, or at least no more than a virus or a bacteria has a value system. Right? Blights don't uh, blights don't poison crops and lead to the collapse of civilizations because they have any variety of intent. They just happen to be malignant. Well, I mean, you're talking external natural world blights. Uh, I'm applying them to the individual character. So I'm mm -hmm. probably going to take a psychological uh, lens and apply it to what you say. Mm. Well, we can do that, but I'm, I'm sceptical of the applicability of much of psychology. I mean, given the recent replication crisis in the field, huge swathes of our inherited understanding of what academic psychology has been up to has been laid waste to recently which I, you know is a good thing it clears ground for us to think about things and certainly have no truck with you know freudian psychology or any of those sorts of things but on the other hand i want to i want to believe that there's something in jung that can be you know brought forward usefully so what what, what then is the cause of evil or the the root of evil from a psychological perspective um i scribbled this down just moments before we started recording today i wrote that potentially evil is that which compromises the virtue of protecting what is valuable or essentially damages what is designated valuable So this is just a direct inversion theory. You're saying good thing and whatever hurts that is designated evil. Yeah. I, I can see what's valuable about that, but my problem with it is that it doesn't it, it doesn't isolate the location of the negative pole and doesn't name what that is. And if we don't do that, that leaves us in uh, the world of assuming that varieties of evil are the results of ignorances or lack of awarenesses or educations. It puts us back into the monocausal Vedantist yeah, that's right. approach. So, so, so I think it's better to go further and into the character and nature of man. So I don't see, I don't see nature as inherently evil. 
I see nature as exploring techniques and tactics for triumph. It's just purely a functional endeavor. What's nature in in that statement? Nature is the uh, how, would, how would you say lower chakra world? It's the visceral dimensions. It's the struggling of life to persist in hostile atmospheres. So you mean nature in a, from in a psychological context there? No. Am I understanding strictly you correctly? Not. No. Okay. Nature, nature as in nature is the, is biology striving to find methods to employ uh, in order to survive. Mm. And I think that there is a psychological and characteristic and personality dimension to evil where humans are experimenting with ways to subtly influence things for betterment, for different agendas. And then you have priorities and value systems. You have tastes for power. You have um, persistence of harmonic states. There are different value systems. And I don't think that this was ever something that was really understood on any structured way and was rather evidenced in the faces of the elders. And that even if you survive, you can survive by performing evil act. But that old person can be asked, did you have a good life? Or how's life now? And they can say, "Mm, I'm quite lonely. My life is unfulfilling. And then you associate, okay, this old person has an unfulfilling life. What do the wrinkles on the face say? Yeah. So the issue is, you've previously defined good as having a survival aspect to it. So if you say that survival is, can be continued through acts of evil, then you're Mm -hmm. saying that evil can be good. Yeah. So you have a different so scale. You have, you aren't have the your definitions of the hopelessly confused then? Well, no, because we're working with two different scales. You're talking about survival in the, in the, against nature, the perpetuation of a species. And then you've got the survival of the desire of the individual to embody and engage in qualities of life. So you have a psychological dimension too, a personality, a relationship matrix that is only really enabled once the fundamental has has been been laid, the fundaments have been laid, that you can survive, you can access the food, that you are not conquered by barbarians or whatever it is, that you actually may endure, and only then can that higher scale, the, the next step up in the hierarchy, uh, actually engage. So you're not going to evaluate what it is about character that makes life worth living i mean unless you have some sort of a lot of a lot of religions actually do start to institute this uh, there are ways of living that or there are ways of victory that are not worth engaging in because it affects your ability to exist in the afterlife right, so that's that's a separate issue but i see a separate order to evil and that is in the higher functions of man that only are allowed to be relevant once you have already laid the foundations of survival. So yes, there is a necessary evil in a strict survival sense, but then when it comes to what is the taste and preference of the culture once once the foundations are laid, and that is exemplified in the quality of life of the elders. 
I'm worried that the having two different levels at which good and evil exist is only confusing the issue and that it, you wouldn't be I'm concerned that maybe you would be better off defining good and evil at one of those levels and then coming up with different terms for what the other level was for example you could say that by definition the survival of a culture is good and by definition the um, destruction of a culture is evil and then manifested at the personal level um, there is a there is a person who can be virtuous and a person who can be malicious or something like that because I don't see that there's a necessary connection between what uh, between the goodness of good in the larger scale and the goodness of good at the personal scale and the evilness of evil at the higher scale and the evilness of evil at the lower scale I think it just depends on population scale if you have small groups or even an individual surviving in the bush right so they can engage in what other cultures might deem evil acts and they endure life and, and live a long time and have small groups but then when it's a larger group and the larger groups competing against larger groups the ones who are engaging in evil actually have a tendency to engage in ways that on the whole the culture finds distasteful and it's a reflection of internal conflict within that culture so the culture is actually weakened by its presence and there's this balance that needs to be found because at times those streaks serve on the battlefield but yet in times of peace it weakens the culture because it facilitates internal conflict hmm. again my problem with this is that if you define if you make survival of a culture by definition good and you have multiple cultures and they fight each other then what good is can't be something that is larger than the culture that defines it in fact what is good for one culture is explicitly evil for the other if they are at war with each other so again you've come across the problem of defining good as evil surviving a conflict is an external negotiation it's a separate bubble this sphere combats another sphere but it's about the integrity of the sphere itself the, cor the internally corrosive nature of the presence of evil so the culture endures over time for many centuries say without major war I don't know if that's ever happened I doubt it uh, but the culture itself ends up fracturing and not allowing it to grow yeah see I just I just don't believe it because prior to the invention of self-recriminating ideologies uh, what allowed the culture to grow was good and what allowed the culture to grow was going and conquering other people genociding them and taking all of their stuff and that caused no internal problems at you know it, there was no moment of recrimination there i think that in those times 
you know, going and genociding your neighbours was regarded as a good thing. And it, with a capital G, good there. So I don't see where the evil comes in other than in the other culture they have their own definition of good and evil and what's evil is you coming and genociding them. I'm not sure that we I'm not sure that this approach can get us out of the trap, if you see what I mean. Well, there have been victorious tribes uh, that have had champions whose faces will have the creases that I find expressions of malignancy and yep. their culture but, and but their again, champions but again, existed for a long time. So they survived for a long good, time. And yeah, but if good and evil is culturally defined, you are right. not in the position of being able to make a judgment call about the fact of someone else's virtue or maliciousness because you are using definitions of good and evil that are defined for you from the culture that you come from so actually Mm -hmm. your judgments of other cultures malice Mm. or virtue of their champions is inherently invalid because there is no way to map your good and evil across to their good and evil no i have my own taste but then i have the i have now have the issue and I, i suppose i always have of justifying that taste so that i may lay judgment upon those that exemplify the qualities that I interpret as evil. And that I have to boil down to like the root, uh, like essentially the, um, the prime qualities of humanity, which is the innocence, the trust, that a, the trust that a newborn child has in the parent, and evil as the betrayal of that vulnerability. Just boil it all down to that. Yeah, if I don't see why you would need to justify your definitions, like if you if you come from the perspective that good and evil is culturally defined, then and you inherit those definitions, then I would say that they don't require justification. You can just say because at this point, like at at, at the personal level of an individual inhabiting a culture that uses the concepts of good and evil, those don't rise above the level of being preferences, and preferences don't need to be justified. So for an individual just to say, oh, I think that's good, or I think that's evil, is already a complete manoeuvre. So I agree that it's evil to abuse the trust of children and destroy their innocence like that seems perfectly obvious to me that that's the case but i don't see why you would need to justify your concepts of good and evil if they're already culturally defined well there are cultures where the sacrifice of innocence was ritualized right and that yeah but that yeah that supports my point I know, and that's what that's what I'm trying to reconcile here. That's my issue with with evil, in that, well, I mean, obviously, in that I'm totally intolerant of it, um, but I see, I, I'm understanding how I see the existence of evil, and I have these values and find that betrayal of innocence and the betrayal of the vulnerable and the trust of a child um, to be totally unacceptable, and yet. 
it's so easy for me to see how it operates in, in, in the modes I've described. I won't summarize them now. Um, but then to observe the legacies of cultures that engaged in ritualized sacrifice of innocence. Mm-hmm. You know, it compromises that lensing. So it, it, well, I don't really know how to progress through that. Well, the problem with that is that it puts us in the position of coming to the conclusion that the concepts of good and evil are inherently cultural bigotry and that there's uh, no good or evil that exists outside of culture. And that if that's the case, then, and keep in mind that we're specifically saying that what promotes the culture is good and what def- uh, destroys the culture is bad, in that case, application of the concepts of good and evil can never be anything other than the continued propagation of the culture outwards, mm. even in forms that are abusive. So essentially, <laughs> accepting to accepting the idea of good and evil as being valid concepts ties us to accepting that we must always be in the mode of militaristic expansion of the culture. And if we accept that, how does that line up with historical realities? Well, it seems to be the case that cultures largely battle each other for control of resources. So, if we want to get out of that problem, we need a definition of evil which is not based in a cultural definition. And so neither psychological, neither practical, neither measured in terms of violation of prime virtues, um, neither a measure of the phenomenon of character judgment, uh, neither a measure of how it has a progenitive or degenerative influence on a culture. So a manoeuvre that we could make is placing the concepts of good and evil in a supernatural position and that allows us to make judgments about the world from the viewpoint of a creature that is uh, outside of existence. So I that leads me to think that it's not a coincidence that gods are lawgivers in that sense. I'm stuck in a bit of a loop in that I forgive cultures that engaged in sacrifice because the brute expression was the metaphor. There was sort of like a a direct... um, a direct experience of the meaning in the sacrifice of innocence and I think that was just a purely a uh, a lack of uh, just an evolutionary state a lack of understanding of higher thought and how 
the sacrifice was unnecessary. Um, as such, as we discussed in a previous podcast, to do with um, the ability for cultures to transcend the necessity for um, sacrifice. So I forgive the sacrifice because I see the sacrifice as a way of teaching people about the value of innocence by publicly sacrificing it. People go, okay, right, yeah, okay, we should preserve it. It's really important. Well, and it made sure it, to steer people away from it. And so a part of me allows, allows, um, allows me to forgive the ancestors for that. And as such, because I can explore that in my mind, it lets me cling to the prospect that there is a direct experience of the origin of evil in cultural and humanistic reference rather than needing to go to a transcendent. Yeah, the problem with that is that you're making particularist claims about an abstract concept. Like you haven't named the culture and that, or quote-unquote culture, that you're talking about. So I can only assume that you're taking it at the principle of a of an abstract entity, so that we can discuss it, you know, with convenience. Well, yeah, but if you try to make a if you try to make a particularist claim about that, then that can't be valid. Are you saying I'm damned either way? No, I'm inviting you to uh, make a historical parallel. Well, the, so the we most famous one is more particularly nowadays is the Incan culture, right? But how much we just, know about it? Yeah, they didn't just sacrifice innocents, though. They sacrificed huge numbers of people of all types of varieties. We compare that to migration era Northern Europeans who sacrificed criminals. Well, I'm looking at exploring the, a, a prime, a primal state of innocence in youth. Hmm. So that, like the extreme, is the measure. I mean, there's the Abrahamic story of Ryan. He's asked to sacrifice his only his son, his oldest son. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a story there as well, and then he doesn't. Which, I mean, I can go into my interpretation of that, but it's. It's not the standard ecumenical <laughs> interpretation. So it's as if the symbolic meaning is grounded in the visceral act because the symbolic meaning is not understood to be a thing in its own right. And also people's minds didn't operate in a way that let them interpret that. So in a way it seems forgivable and lets me continue to ground the prospect of evil. So it's so it's performing a public evil act in order to make people aware of that evil so that they do not need to perform it individually. Well, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page for um, the Binding of Isaac, and it says here, In Legends of the Jews, Rabbi Louis Ginsberg argues that the Binding of Isaac is a way of God to test Isaac's claim to Ishmael and to silence Satan's protest about Abraham who had not brought up any offering to God after Isaac was born. Also, to show a proof to the world that Abraham is the true God-fearing man who is ready to fulfill any of God's commandments, even to sacrifice his own son. And then it quotes from Legends of the Jews. When God commanded the father to desist from sacrificing Isaac, Abraham said, 
One man tempts another, because he knoweth not what is in the heart of his neighbour. But thou surely didst not know that I was ready to sacrifice my son. God replies, It was manifest to me, and I foreknew it, that thou wouldst withhold not even thy soul from me. Abraham replies, And why then didst thou afflict me thus? God says, It was my wish that the world should become acquainted with thee, and should know that it was not without good reason that I have chosen thee from all the nations. Now it hath been witnessed unto men that thou fearest God. So the traditional interpretation then would be that the reason why God commanded Abraham to sacrifice his son was to make it publicly avowable that there's nothing that Abraham wouldn't sacrifice, uh, even including his own soul, for the purpose of creating prosperity for the nation that he was a part of. Ugh. Cementing the prospect that evil acts can be good. Well, keep in mind that in Abraham and Isaac, the evil act didn't actually happen. Well, the sin is in the thought, as the Christians say. Not necessarily just the deed. Yeah, but if it's a thought that arises because God told you to do it, is it actually a sin? Well, fuck. Well, excuse me. You have to edit that out. Um, <laughs> you'll have to go to a transcendent then. Transcendent value. Go on. Where were you going with that shtick? It's been golden to it. Well, I don't have an answer. But my earlier suggestion was that the reason why these values of good and evil are placed outside of the world is because it relieves cultures from the problem of having enculturated, or, or it appears to relieve cultures from the problem of having enculturated values. So that when you come across other peoples and other peoples say to you, uh, you only think that's good because it serves you, you can instead point to the exterior realm and say, no, no, these commandments come down from on high and you should also respect them because they are uh, come from the creator or an external force. Now, I don't think that actually solves the problem of enculturation because, as we know, religions arise out of cultures as well. <laughs> So we can really only interpret the creation of religions in that sense as attempts, like more, as more weapons on which to attack other cultures. However, this also presents us with another problem, which is that there are religions that are worshipped by or that are adhered to uh, by multiple cultures. So in that sense, if there are values of good and evil that are adhered to by multiple cultures then is it not the case that those values of good and evil have escaped the culture from which they arose theosophy what's that? essentially the pursuit of theosophy uh, theos being god, sophia being wisdom so it's essentially looking at the various cultures and 
conceptions of God to try and find consistent themes among them. Theosophy is the endeavour to identify what good is based on the history of man, not just particular cultures. Yeah. The problem is that we already know that the Golden Dawn attempted to prevent religious conflicts by creating a system of uh, interpretation whereby one religion could be translated into another and therefore it could be shown that religions were in some sense fundamentally um, along a similar track and that conflict would be counterproductive between them but that project failed This, the Baha'i faith was the follow-up, a more neutral attempt. Yes. Hey, all religions, we've all got the same God, we're all good. These are the common virtues. Let's just, let's just f- use those. And similarly, Sikhism was an attempt to evade the conflict between Islam and Hinduism. Although all of their prophets were later slaughtered by Islamists. But anyway, <laughs> so there are religions that attempt or and there are attempts to find ourselves in a place of finding goods and evils that are outside of religious commandments and outside of cultural perspectives i'm thinking of sam harris's approach as finding a rationalized version of what constitutes good and evil but I don't regard that as being successful because he hasn't managed to step outside <laughs> his cultural context. Great sound effects there. Thanks. <laughs> right. I, at the end of my um, sort of really ambitious attempts to cover western philosophy i came across a lecture on well, essentially it was the conclusion to a series i'd been listening to and it said oh we sort of don't really at the end of that yeah the nature of good and evil and uh, is still moot so instead we're just going to look at the practicalities of examining those who are in the late stages of their life and ask them whether they had a good life and they answer in only four categories, active, contemplative, hedonistic, and servile, being the four categories of the good life. And I found that really nice to be able to boil down the whole conundrum to let's just look at the people who don't think in terms of philosophy and look at them at the end of their life and see if they perceive themselves as having had a good life. And the four dimensions seem valid for the individual that makes the claim that they had a good life. They have a clear justification by referring to their achievements in those dimensions. Like I myself have had such freedom and liberty to sit back, relax, round a fire, read books, and converse with my friends out of war. Thus, I've had a good life by the contemplative measure. And my father had a great life by the active measure. He um, is indomitable in the 
natural world. You know, Hawaiian sling fishing, free diving, collecting huge lobsters and building his house and achieving great things in business. Like he's out there doing things. He doesn't sit back and and just navel gaze. So his is a good life by the active term. And rock stars and people who try and go hard and die young. Well, they don't try and die young, but they just happen to. Um, you know, we're traveling the world, trying foods from many nations, looking into orgies and exploring the full extent of sexuality as well as drugs and party scenes, maybe going deaf and having liver disease and cir- you know, cirrhosis and early, early suffering. They still look at their life and go, oh, I had a good life. Look how much awesome, fun things I got to do, so much more than others who are engaging more responsibly. And thus they justify goodness in their life. And then, of course, Mother Teresa's those who find greater happiness in a transcendent, servile type satisfaction. And all of them seem valid. Would certainly would be aesthetically pleasing if the um, philosophy of the ancients um, you know, proved its worth once again. I think that... My, my conclusion from this discussion is that at, a, at the philosophical level, at the very beginning of our understanding of what good and evil is, this when we origin, create this original binary of things that we like and things that we want to push away, the original philosophical manoeuvre of thinking that there are poles at either end of that binary that sum up the total version of those and and they have these strange attractors at the end of them that that are like the epitome of those i think that that original maneuver is invalid and so all of this discussion of good and evil is in some sense chasing its tail because the poles which we think of as good and evil are not actually there and that's why we can't find them. I have been exploring an alternate interpretation of the nativity story. Um, this prospect of Mary of Nazareth um, being able to give birth to a God child. And I've been looking at the extreme forms of you know, this modern conception of divine masculine and divine feminine. But actually, it's not just modern, of course. It can be drawn upon from Vedic or from many cultures, of course. Um, And looking at what is the story saying, and it suggests to me her ability to be so in the feminine, so much in flow and so nurturing that to the extreme that that the nature of the divine masculine uh, impregnates her. And I take from that how to make good children, how to make a God child. How to make a good child is to have um, a woman able and enabled to be in extreme feminine modalities for the formative processes of um, gestation and early childhood. And I see that exemplified in the quality of children that can be born from these essentially traditional values family values and I look at that story and go okay well how long back would that story go and I 
can't see an end to it. I could see the necessity for, well, it's not just the necessity, that the likelihood that the quality of the progeny would be increased is totally there, in that if the mother has to be in combat during pregnancy, the chances of miscarriage are increased. If she is struggling for resources during early nurturing processes, then the quality of offspring is likely to be decreased. It's just a very functional dimension to it. So I'm still inclined towards conceptions of evil being qualities that decrease the likelihood of the, the God-child occurring. And that means the conditions that reduce trust, reduce confidence, that require those who are in vulnerability and surrender and nurturing, conditions that increase the need for them to sacrifice that ability to be nurturing in exchange for their ability to continue just you know, surviving. The idea being that the masculine holds the space and secures the boundary and protects what is valuable, the prospect of a godchild, and to the extent where that godchild is able to be supported and nurtured. What, what do you mean by God's child? Uh, the good, the good child, the um, the child that is born without wounds, is is born into the nurturing environment that is um, the best that can be for the growth and development and prosperity of that creature. So. You know, the, the three karmic layers, essentially, biologically having all the nutrient and resource and conditions and warmth and basic low-tier needs, um, and also, you know, low mutagen as well, or none. Uh, emotionally, uh, that, the, that the conditions were not traumatic uh, emotionally, and there was no you know, major lack or desperation or um, inappropriate expression from the major nurturing parties, role models, uh, and then the spiritual as well, being the value system uh, in which they are raised, it prioritizes their prosperity. And so the three layers of karma, essentially, biological, emotional, and spiritual. And I can see that throughout, I can't imagine a situation where that would not be good. And I think that that is built into us on a biological level. So I think there is a biological basis for a, di for, for a distaste for evil. And I think that we have, over eons, um, come to understand the expressions of evil and on a, on a biological level, understand the likelihood of its presence reducing the prospect of the quote-unquote, what I'm using, godchild. Um, but also, we understand as well that at times, those qualities are necessary to protect the border, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, it seems obvious to me that nobody wants to get eaten by a lion or whatever. Yeah. But it, you've extended that a long way, and I'm, mm. not, I'm not convinced it's completely tenable. I've tried to extend it as far as I can. So I'm right at the edge of tenability for myself. I can't expect to be able to translate that fully. I'm just mm. trying to express to you that even after this discussion, I still find that tenable. Well, 
what's useful about that and how it relates to our discussion is that it is, doesn't rely on the kind of polar ends of the binary of good and evil to be present in order for that for your schema to still hold up right it doesn't necessarily mm -hmm. that mean there doesn't need to be a singular good force or a singular evil force or nexus of force in the world or outside the world or whatever in order for that to be present uh, for your schema to hold it's entirely yeah. possible that it can just be the the basic attraction or good is what the things that we're attracted to and evil is the things that we reject um and if we extrapolate from that basic proposition which is we assume is nested inside all of us who are not uh, so catastrophically damaged that we lose track of what those are uh, upwards and outwards from the basic you know rejection of being devoured then it quite easily builds into a schema of um, diversifying into male and female roles and also diversifying mm -hmm. into uh, the usefulness of uh, having children and the kind of natural and uh, nurturing and protective roles that that entails mm -hmm. I, is it, I wonder if you can work backwards instead right like can we reverse the narrative and say inside us we have these urges to uh, protect and nurture and they manifest themselves in uh, the way that we treat our children and the children being subject to those manifestations uh, tend to grow up well and uh, growing up well uh, become useful and wealthy and productive members of society mm, yeah I, I was considering that implicit or implied but but what is that but then what is the outcome for our notion of good and evil if we reverse reverse it that way it doesn't sound reversed it sounds like they are two sides to the same coin there yeah they, they are two yeah but, okay well that's a nonsensical statement if they're two sides of the same the coin then they are reversed, reversed. Okay. exactly okay. <laughs> <laughs> right i'm considering Pick the one. same coin explore it for me sorry um <laughs> the point that i'm trying to make is that if we tell the story the opposite way round. Uh, where what's happened to good and evil uh, uh, those concepts are redundant now right there was no point in having them is that where we end up well good and evil is the oh okay okay well, now i get what you're saying um i would say that good and evil are the fast labels because we had no way to describe the biological foundations because they are a mystical journey they're, they're like in an individuals right but if these uh, urges arise naturally within us then what yeah, is natural right. is what is good and what is unnatural is what is evil but i thought we already established that, that it was not simple to uh 
align things that way because there's many things that are natural that we regard as being as evil and many things that are unnatural that we regard as being good so it leads us back back into confusion right okay so evil as the the category of indicators that suggest movement away from the ideal so, for example, a cultural, you may have a, a biological basis and an inherent understanding that this is good and you don't really know about it. We don't talk about it. some individual mystical phenomenon. Uh, and then there's an external indicator of some quality of experience that trips a little warning bell inside of you that's saying this is going away from the ideal. And you say it's evil, but it's not actually a thing in itself. It's rather an indicator of a misdirection. So much in the same way. Or a situation that requires a course correction. So much in the same way that I proposed that God was a category on our last podcast, we could say that good and evil are also categories. And no less virtuous. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't undercut them at all to be categories. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, but then. then that makes me think immediately, wait, aren't, does that mean that all words are just categories for clusters of understanding? In which case, we're in the position of accepting that language was always just a kind of fuzzy approximation of what we were trying to communicate about the world, which I'm well, perfectly happy with. tautologies with non-translatable revelations. The words are all just words defining words, and then we as individuals try and found them upon certain physical yeah. Yeah, experiences. But, yeah, but without definitions. Because they are categories, they don't have definitions, because categories and definitions are mutually exclusive things. A, a definition is, it is this, and a category it is uh, all of the varieties of um, experience or proposition that fit within certain parameters or all go inside this bucket. So you're saying that attempts to define evil as uh, qualities that indicate a misdirection is not a definition? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. I'm saying you're misusing the word definition there because a definition is a single principle whereas a bucket is a, whereas a um, category a bucket, is a yeah. bucket into which things are placed. So to restate the proposition without using the term definition would be to say that language is sets of buckets that cluster varieties of experience and understanding around generally acknowledged habits of experience that are placed in relation to each other and because of the familiarity of human experience across people, those general patterns overlap with our understandings with each other, and that's what allows communication to occur. And when we add the concepts of good and evil into this linguistic framework, what we're doing is simply saying that this general binary is actually not really a binary at all, but rather 
a relationship between clustered forms of experience that is averaged across abstracted populations and manifests itself in language that way. You've been listening to the Rogue Insider Podcast.